Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Chris Luberstedt. We're at Winters Hill in Dayton. It's August 9th, 2021. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, first question, biggest question, is why wine? It's <laughs> the golden question. It's a million dollar question. Yeah. Um, you know, I was drawn to it for, I hate to say that for the science of it, but I, I kind of came into it in it, around that backside, and I really got into how the the science was not only driving but riding along with you know this artistic expression, this end product that everybody was enjoying that you know it has you know huge social uh, upsides, and you know it just brought people together and. Um, yeah, it was. It wasn't a direct path. I didn't. I wasn't like shot arrow. Must be winemaker. Let's do it. You know. It just. I. I remember specific times along my career where I was just like, you know, in the middle of harvest or something. And you're like, wow. You know, this is what I chose to do. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's talk about life before wine a little bit then. Tell me about uh, where you're born, where you grew up, and uh, sort of life uh, early age. Well, that, that has a lot to do with the, the complex reason of why wine. For me, I was actually uh, raised in the Napa Valley. And my family, my, my mom and dad were in, they ran inns and bread and breakfast. We weren't a winery family. But it was, and this is in, you know, we moved there in 80, 81. So early Napa early you know wine blowing up as as you know more mainstream for America um, <clears throat> it um, yeah it was it was something you know seeing that that side of it early on I remember you know restaurants not being able to stay open all winter because there wasn't enough tourism you know and then just watching it mm -hmm. continue to to expand and to you know, I don't know when it hit that thing where it became, you know, second most popular after Disneyland or something in California. It was, it was a weird place to be, weird place to grow up. Mm -hmm. You know, being a busboy in a Michelin star restaurant. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, Oregon. When we moved to Oregon, it was, um, it definitely resonated with me more. The that it was still families, it was still pioneering, it was still exploratory, and yet it was clear that the quality and the, the focus and, and just the intensity was, was there. Mm -hmm. So what point did Oregon become part of the story for you? 95, early 96, mm -hmm. yeah. What brought you up? So um, my wife, my current, you know, my wife now, we were, we were dating back then. Um, she had had some family that lived in Southern Oregon and I had visited Oregon and we were looking for 
you know, kind of that place to settle down or place to, you know, be grown-ups. And um, we, we joke, we, we almost literally flipped a coin between Seattle and Portland. <laughs> so, uh, but we knew, I think we, we had our, our hearts a little bit more set on, on Portland early on. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we chose it and, and kept on going. And it was, uh, we, yeah, now we've got, you know, two boys we're raising here, they're born here. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's become our, our place. So what, tell me about sort of for you, like, Life after high school. What, what, what were you What were you doing after you graduated high school? What was the next step for you at that point? Oh, after high school, it was you know a little bit of travel, a little bit of you know who do I want to be? Who am I? <laughs> uh, the usual sort of growing up. Um, but then I started um, uh, college uh, with a biology sort of focus. Um, became we ended. Um, biology major and so that's where that that kind of the sciencey side of the winemaking um, got me it was like I would I my ultimate degree was in zoology and, and um, so I sort of looked at the at the ferments like you know like big critters you know they needed to be fed they needed to be take care taken care of you know if you there wasn't something there. They they acted up and you know got sick. <laughs> Had to take care of them, um, and that's yeah. That's a lot of, of sort of the way I started thinking about them and and um, and getting into it. So you grew up in in wine country and watched it become kind of explode into even more wine country. So at what point did you start to did wine start to be an interest to you, either either drinking it or or making it? I think, yeah, I mean, as a, you know, at enjoying the wine itself, um, probably with, you know, working in restaurants, um, I was exposed to some pretty amazing wines and um, that side of it and, and what the, you know, the people talking about it in, I hate to say intelligently, but, you know, on a, on a, a bigger level than just consuming mm -hmm. and putting the, the context of we do all this and we put all this quality into it so that it, it becomes this product and you, it, you know, it's enjoyed in this way and, and um, elevates food and elevates, you know, conversation and yeah, so pretty early on. That was, can I say before 21? <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has passed on that, so you're probably okay. safe to say that. So tell me about learning wine from that, from that way. Were there certain wines, certain regions, certain things about wines that appealed to you over others? Um, at that phase, or at that time, no. I wasn't, you know, I, it, it was definitely driven, the conversation was definitely from Napa Valley wines. Mm -hmm. And... I remember hearing things like, you know, oh, Pinot Noir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Chard and Cab were definitely dominating, you know, what we were all talking about. And, and that was a, you know, that was a really dark time when White Zinn just went. <sighs> so, um, but when I came up to Oregon and started exploring Pinot Noir, both drinking it and, and enjoying it, and then 
beginning to work with it, I got it sort of right away. It, you know, that that is, it's a special grape, it's a special wine. Um, the complexities, the, the nuance, you know, um, that's, it definitely, it definitely clicked. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that it was up here that you sort of started to kind of play with it. Tell me about winemaking. At what point did it become something you thought you could do with for a career? So, so literally connected with the wine industry up here through um, my wife's client, um, who was Eileen Geary, the owner of Christum, uh, her and her husband Paul, and talked and you know they um, they told stories about me and <laughs> and what I was doing and um, just finishing up my degree at that point and um, I think the conversation really connected when because I was studying biology and and one of my professors said oh there's there's a certain rodent I think it was a kangaroo mouse or something like that that was out in Willamette Valley Aglands and vineyards. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I talked to Eileen and, I, and I, I said, hey, can I go out and poke around the vineyard and see if you have any of these, these little critters out in your, <laughs> your vineyard? And she said, yeah. And we talked and I wound up working a memorial weekend in the tasting room and, and pretty much never left. Um, started working more and uh, in the tasting room to learn about you know their wines and and the winemaking side you know from that from that from a production perspective you know and then how to explain that to a consumer and that's that sort of really you know fueled the the fires and and then started working when harvest rolled around worked harvest to crush crew and with that with Steve and and Paul and and um, Andy and uh, and then stayed on there after I graduated. And then shortly after, I kind of, that's really when I, I knew I wanted to be in production. Um, I got, I think it was 2000, 2001, went over to Willa Kenzie and got sort of a, um, a seller, full-time seller position with Willa Kenzie. Um, Jimmy Brooks had just left to go to Maserat and um, Tebow was there, and Laurent was still there, of course. And so that's when I, you know, that's when I went mm -hmm. both feet into production and, and just kept on moving and left there in 2005 as assistant winemaker and jumped over to, with Joe Dobbs, 2005, and his, in the new facility in Dundee, the new facility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talk about the the f actually we'll start before we go to production. Let's talk about the the, the, the tasting room side of things. And mm -hmm. again, you mentioned kind of learning in order to teach. So tell me tell me about that process for you. What did you learn about production before actually being part of it? And then what was your first production experience actually like after after that? Yeah, um, you know it's I the the whole teaching thing. You you know you can kind of I guess you can gauge a teacher by how you know how into the subject they are <laughs> and I always felt like 
I wanted, you know, I was just honestly, you know, kind of showing them, introducing people to what they were doing, you know. I, I didn't like the, the tasting room experience where it was like, here's your wine, nectarine, pineapple, and cardamom, you know, whatever, you know, it's just like, okay, that's, you know, a grocery list. Um, and, you know, I think it, it I, unique as well that Christum has, a, um, you know, their traditional methods, their traditional sort of roots, um, while, I don't know if you would say minimal in, in winemaking, you know, processing and all that stuff, it, it needs some explanation, native yeast and mm -hmm. native ferments mm -hmm. and, and, you know, um, why fining versus not filtering and, you know, um, all of those, it kind of, there was a story to tell there, mm -hmm. you know, more than a tank farm that's like, well, we open up the spigot and we hook up up to the bottling truck, and there you go. So, um, did you find people were pretty interested in in hearing about that at that point? Yes, yeah, and and pretty soon into that process, I think everybody experiences the how much to tell the the consumer or the visitor. You know, you can you can see when their eyes glaze over and. You know, we were super into it, and we're going to tell you all about clonal variation and uh, soil types, and and they're just kind of thinking about lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so sure, sure. So from that perspective, then tell me about your first production experience. What what was it? What you expected? What what did you like about it? I liked. Um, I like the intensity of it. I mean, it was you know, harvest is is all hands on deck and and wet and dirty and and you know you just get in there and it's and there's such a kind of a camaraderie because um, everybody that's you know doing harvest or on that on that crush crew knows what needs to be done. Like mm -hmm. it's it's gotta get fruit's gotta get harvested, the wine's gotta get made. There's no stop the clock and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up to that later. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did like that. And then the, um, you know, like I said, the, you're checking in on ferments and monitoring them and, and um, being involved in, you know, feeding, you know, doing ads that you need to and adjustments or, or not, mm -hmm. you know, but evaluating uh, through the whole step. And then that sense of accomplishment too. It's just like, you know, six months later or whatever, you're like, oh, okay. That, tasting the wine in barrel, you're like, I remember that. You know, I remember that when it was, when it was just a fermenter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's a finished wine now. Talk about the, the change for you then from, from, uh, from Christom to Willa Kinsey, a big step up, as you said, kind of jumping all the way in and, and full time. So first first impressions of, of Willa Kinsey and, and sort of your first role there. <laughs> So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, definitely larger production. It was, you know, going from uh, from a winery that was like so many 
um, you know, kind of a kind of a converted pole barn. Mm -hmm. I mean, not really like a, an engineered facility. So going from that into Willie Kenzie, which at the time was one of the earliest, you know, purpose-built wineries here in Oregon, '95 uh, I think is when they they completed the building, and you know, so it, had, it was multi-level, gravity flow, it was um, it was you know, it was a built winery. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, but yet the heart was still there. You know, I remember, um, I mean, I would still cover the tasting room during the week. You know, we'd be racking barrels and, you know, the doorbell would go off and all right, somebody's got to run upstairs. And so, you know, when you think about Willie Kinsey now, you know, being bought by Jackson family and you, you wouldn't imagine that it was Bernie and Ronnie, LeCrut, you know, they're, their vision and they were there all the time and and you know it just to see that that progression as it mm. comes up mm. um, I mean there's still a lot of winery wine brands where the winemaker you know you'll you'll bump into them you know either in their tasting room or they'll they'll be pouring wine for you mm -hmm. but it I think it's it's stark to when you look back and say oh that's where it, that did start up and then it gets bought up by you know a bigger company and becomes this this bigger entity. But yeah, that was you know, and that was um, it. Didn't feel impersonal, and it wasn't like oh, I'm going to a tank farm. You know, even though the facility was there, there was still Laurent Thibault and myself. Mm -hmm. You know, running around the cellar. So mm -hmm. still very personal. Tell me about working with those two. Very cool. You know, it was um, at one point, I think, in the production staff, I, I was like the only, only like native English speaker. <laughs> so I felt like it was like reverse. Uh, <laughs> um, between Daniel Fay was the vineyard manager at the time, he was Swiss German. We had another, we always had interns um, from, from either from France or from um, New Zealand. And so it was definitely, uh, uh, definitely multi, multicultural, great experience. Um, you know, and Laurent being part of that early, that early clave of, I think they called themselves party of eight or party of five, you know, and they would run around to restaurants and go to markets. Laurent and Lynn Penarash and Steve Dorner was part of that and Ken Wright. Sorry if I'm leaving anybody out, no, no disrespect. <laughs> um, but yeah, that you know that led to kind of telling the Oregon story, and um, that's always something that I've have not forgotten or taken for granted that mm -hmm. I was, you know, I got to be with those people and learn from them, um, who ultimately kind of went on to build the Oregon wine community mm -hmm. to what it is today. Mm -hmm. You know, I, mean, I don't know if I'm overselling that, but I mean it's yeah. Kind of, kind of the way it is. So, what was your role when you when you were hired at Willikinsey, and how did it evolve over the years you were there? Cellar guy, yeah. And like I said, kind of run in onto the tasting room every once in a while, and then you know production. You know, this was early two thousands, so um, you know we saw that was it the the dot com kind of boom where people were really collecting wine and buying wine and our production increased and our, you know, sort of 
uh, our demand in the cellar went up. And so it just kept on, you know, scooching more into more and more production and, and more responsibility as I stepped into it too. I mean, I was still pretty green and um, uh, at some, let's see, a couple years in is when Laurent left um, and then he started Northwest Wine Company. So Thibaut got the tap to be winemaker and, and then I stepped in with Thibaut to be his assistant. We had some, um, we had some some PhD students um, as like long-term, also, you know, kind of assistant winemaker lab, doing a lot of research. Ronnie, uh, Bernie was, was really into um, to research and experimentation mm -hmm. for not like, you know, let's hybridize this, but more like w how do you best extract, you know, how do you manage tannins, mm -hmm. how, you know, very pointed research topics. So the next step for you was then you said it to Dobbs, the, the new, new, new Dobbs. So t tell me about, yeah. tell me about that, that transition for you. So that's really when, um, that was another, you know, escalation. <laughs> 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 um, because I remember telling Tebow that I was leaving and he was just like, well, why? You know, everything's like working really well right now. And, and Willie Kenzie was 100% estate at the time. Even Red Hills, uh, their Red Hills property was coming online, but that was still a state, um, you know, state fruit. And, it, you know, we had really were just getting everything sort of dialed in. And I kind of realized, unfortunately, that's not how I'm going to learn. That's not how I'm going to progress with experiences and, and you know, mm -hmm. um, development. So I wanted to throw myself into something, you know, another challenge. And, and Joe was, you know, he was building three, sort of that three-tier, three-legged, um, entity where it was wine by joe which was unique at the time too because those were you know that was when pinots were 60 75 dollars everybody was looking at single vineyard you know and he and a few others went the other way and said hey let's see if we can do like a sub 20 dollar pinot and 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 bring it you know grocery store mm -hmm. um, go that direction so that was wine by joe and so he had these, you know, he had these big fruit contracts that he had arranged and, and had this, you know, bigger volume production while he was still nurturing up um, Dobbs' family, I think is what he called mm -hmm. it, which was his high-end single vineyard, you know, traditional model. And then he threw in Custom Crush in this facility. So making wine for other brands, other wineries that didn't have a facility. Um, and he located a, a building in Dundee that was like a warehouse and retrofitted it. And, and that was, so that was right in 2005. And so he hired me just before that summer we were kind of getting the building ready they were still cutting drains in the floor and you know we were we were fitting tanks in and 
couple of them were a little tall, so <laughs> there were some logistical challenges. But, was, but that was, you know, that's that's where you learn. You're, you know, you're in the middle of harvest, and we figured out the the tank was too tall to dump over the top with the with the forklift. We couldn't get the bin over it. <laughs> it's like, oh man. And there's a truck outside with fruit, so. Um, and you know, and he was pulling in fruit from all over the state. Um, Southern or a lot of Southern Oregon contacts. Several of the clients were Southern Oregon fruits, mm -hmm. um, and so that exposed me to you know other fruits, other varietals, you know the things that uh, you just you know solve on the go. And you know he had some definitely had direction and and, and input, but it was all you know there was a there was a lot of of uh, innovation going on. Yeah. I'm curious about that. Tell me about some of that. Is there any, anything that stands out in your mind as kind of problems to be solved, uh, uh, kind of in the heat of the moment? Well, when a grape truck flips itself over trying to back up in the parking lot at 11 o'clock at night, and there's, there's some challenges. There's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I. I think what I, maybe what, what came out of that for me was you, chaos is, is kind of going to be there for harvest and you, you can't predict. Even, even your pick times, you know, your best, best practices, your vineyard, you know, vineyard manager, you know, they say they started picking at 10 and fruit's going to be on the truck and you'll see it by, by 2 o'clock and when 6 o'clock rolls around, it's not there, you know. Um, you just can't lose it or take it personal, you know. I, I've always sort of made it a, a, a conscious effort to just keep calm and, and be mellow about harvest, you know. It's crazy enough. You, you know, yelling and throwing buckets is not going to help out anything. <laughs> so that, that certainly, that um, you know, that level of new dynamic, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. d yeah, that definitely shaped me going forward into the next, you know, mm -hmm. what I wanted to be as a winemaker and how, how I was going to address it. I was like, oh, okay, I get it, you know. Well, I'm curious to ask about that next, but I'm, I'm also curious, <laughs> like you talked about kind of the, the, the new model at the time of, of the, the, the high-end brand. The kind mm -hmm. of grocery store brand and also the custom crush. So you're doing a yeah. lot. You got a lot. You mentioned chaos. That sounds that sounds very chaotic. So tell me about yeah. managing that. How do you manage that much, that many different things going on, and, and make sure everything gets the the time and attention it needs from you? Um, prioritizing. Well, no, knowing where things are going at at the end. I mean, having a making sure you you have the the sort of the roadmap or vision of where things are headed. Um, and then you can pick your battles. You know that, I mean, you know that the machine harvested fruit is coming in, is going to get this kind of treatment because it's, it's going into, into that bottle, you know, that, that skew um, versus the handpick uh, lot that you know is going to be single vineyard and, you know, came from that source. And so you... You know, that was also the, the thing about harvest was, you know, you really just have to be so incredibly mindful 
of of every detail and know where those where those bins went to you know that had uh, you know that had, had from a specific vineyard mm -hmm. I mean it seems somewhat um, obvious but um, just can't let off on the details at all mm -hmm. and but you can pick your battles and so you gain a little bit of a little bit of, of breathing room by knowing, you know, hey, this is this wine's going to get this, and it just it really, you know, it's gonna it's gonna get this treatment. Mm -hmm. So that makes a difference. And it's always the high-end single vineyard blocks that have the accidents. <laughs> Those are the tanks that the forklifts just automatically roll into. <laughs> Magnet, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the bulk tanks, nothing can happen to them. No. <laughs> With the idea of Wine by Joe, which of course, at the time, again, kind of the time was some, somewhat novel, as you mentioned, uh, I'm curious about the, that challenge. You mentioned the challenge of trying to make a good Oregon Pinot Noir at that kind of price point. Mm -hmm. What did you learn from that for yourself going forward? Was that, did you, did you feel like the goal was met? Were you making the wines you wanted to make at the, at the prices you wanted to make at that point? Um. Honestly, I, I wasn't in enough of a, um, a management level to really, I was more the observer and the, the instrument to that production. So I don't feel like I really couldn't answer that. Um, yeah, I really didn't have a, a say. Mm -hmm. um, I think we were still, you know, even in Oregon high production, you know, what we were, oh, you know, big volumes. It's still just a drop in what some global producers are, are doing in, you know, kind of we, we call them these tank farms, you know, these larger volume facilities. So we're still just small scale, mm -hmm. you know, and even though it's big for Oregon, big, big for Willamette Valley, you know, that's still, it was still hands-on winemaking. Mm -hmm. So I eat kind of have to put that in perspective too. It's like, you know, 10,000 or even 5,000 cases was like a big deal versus somebody's 50,000 case lot mm -hmm. that gets made. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely a, even that has, has a bigger impact or a bigger, you know, overall impact. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think the wines were still very much genuine and, and handmade, um, and just trying to get those price points down. It's just tough with Pinot. You know, the, the farming costs up here higher, the everything. We didn't have the economy of scale, you know. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, that was, at some point it just became a, a, a battle for the sales marketing and, and accountants, you know, to, to duke it out on, on how low you could get the price. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point you've 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 been at three different places very kind of different styles different sizes different shapes mm -hmm. what, what's sort of developing in your mind at this point as to what what you want to do you know if, if all, all the barriers are gone what 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 do you want to do what do you want to see in the future for yourself and, and what's the next step for you towards towards that goal so the the Dobbs model was definitely you know experience builder 
kind of hardened my resolve, sort of like, all right, if you can handle this, you know, you got it. Um, and so I, I, uh, I got in contact with, or was connected with um, Alan Methvin, and he was building, he had had a, a piece of property down in the old Amity Hills um, that had some vineyard land planted on it already. I think it was 30, about 20, 28 acres at the time, Paul Park. And then um, he wanted to build a winery on that property. So we got connected and um, hit it off. And uh, I, I got the tag to you know, kind of drive that. And we built the building in summer of 07 and, and had grapes in it, that vintage. And it was, and so what, what drew me to that was back to the estate fruit. You know, here was um, estate fruit, um, you know, managed for single vineyard, you know, quality, um, quality focused, um, you know, straight to the tasting room. Um, you know, back to that. I knew I didn't want to go on in higher volume production that while I appreciate the experience you know and what it what it did for me it wasn't what I wanted to do mm. so yeah going back to the single vineyard and estate driven fruit was the was the was the path for me <laughs> and the family aspect is is cool you know um, where you know own, owner owner operator you know. So that's a pretty big challenge then trying to, you know, you, you have you have the space already, but now it's you're trying to build a winery. So, so tell me tell me about that. I'm curious about what you had seen, what you advised on uh, what the winery should be and, and, and should be able to handle and then sort of what your role was in finalizing it. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so we talked about, you know, it had to it had to sort of make sense um, economically, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be, um, uh, you know, a, a chateau style, you know, anything over the top. It was going to be a production facility. Mm -hmm. And one of the things after going through the, um, the Dobbs facility and sort of taking that from a warehouse to a winery, uh, and then coming from Willie Kinsey, that was extremely, that was engineered. Um, and visiting other places and doing harvest and in other facilities, um, I wanted something purpose-built but open floor plan and kind of a just a you know a nice big concrete box with good floor drains and plenty of water pressure. <laughs> um, and so that's that's what we did, and that made sense. Uh, we were able to get a little bit of a gravity drop and some some. Um, uh, hillside, you know, kind of coverage for the barrel room, so it was partially underground, and you know, had some had some cool features like that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it was it was really pretty open floor plan, and and that's what we were all after. Um, it made sense. I mean, it was you know, it's uh, a little bit cheaper to build and and super flexible, and so. So once it was built, what was your kind of role at Methvin at that point? So I was winemaker. Um, uh, Alan and Jill, you know, they weren't 
in production, so um, they leaned on me heavily to uh, to drive the, the winemaking and, and um, build the, the style, the brand, and mm. we would check in and talk about you know what we're doing and and how what direction we're going and and what direction the fruit was going too, because it was fairly young vineyard in full production by the time the the building was was up, mm. but. You know the the identity of the vineyard was yet to be determined. Mm. We had uh, Pinot Gris, uh, several clones of Pinot Noir, uh, some Riesling, uh, Chardonnay, and so, and this was also 2007, 2008. Oregon Chardonnay was less than spectacular in in the sales world. So we grafted over two acres of Chardonnay to Gamay Noir. And I had worked with, Willie Kinsey had Gamay. Bernie and Ronnie had planted it because they loved, um, uh, they loved Gamay and, and enjoyed um, the style that came of that wine. And so I, I enjoyed working with it. And I was like, hey, Gamay is awesome. So we planted that. And I feel like that was a, now Gamay, I mean, Time will tell, but <laughs> there's a lot of Gamay that's getting planted right now. <laughs> so it was interesting at the time. So that's a kind of a big challenge for you then, sort of sort of developing with the, developing what's coming from the vineyard, developing a, a house style mm -hmm. from from other people's kind of other people's palate. So tell me about. I'm, I'm curious yeah. about that. How do you go about something like that? How do you sort of present the options and, and make a plan? Yeah. Um, so my touchstone to that was I did a vintage in, uh, in Australia with, uh, with Gary Farr at Bannockburn. And he had made a lot of wine. He was personal friends with um, uh, Jacques Seyss over at Dujac and had done several vintages and they were just, they were friends. And so Gary had kind of a, he had, he had a, a deep perspective of the wine industry on multi-continents. Multi um, so I appreciated his wisdom. And he, and he said, always make wine that you want to drink because you may have to. <laughs> so, and I, I you know, I, I like that. And that's where, I think that's where I started because that's, you know, you have to, you have to be connected to what you're doing or else it's, you know, it's not going to work out. Your, your heart's not in it. But there is that consumer side where, you know, the consumer palate will sway and, and you know, look at Oregon Chardonnay. It's like it wasn't, wasn't working out for a while. Now it's back. And, you know, their styles have shifted a little bit. But um, the consumer palate will, you can make a wine that you want to drink, but, you know, if you can't sell it, then you're not going to have a, a successful business. <laughs> so that's, I think that's the big ticket is to modulate those two. Mm -hmm. Be true to yourself. Either connect to customers that are have palates like you or enjoy, or you know, uh, or or temper the the difference um, between what you like and and what you want to what you want to present. Mm -hmm. But I think you know, fortunately the wine wine lovers and wine consumers they do get 
that somebody made you know that somebody made this wine and they had a personality and um, you know especially here um, with so many small producers so much of that um, you know so much of that is personal style mm -hmm. of the producer mm -hmm. kind of the the age when you know the the winemaker rock star was 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 a little bit more driving it you know people were buying names mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. and that and that helped kind of educate people as well like hey you know it doesn't have to be formulaic so how would you describe your style at, at the time obviously you had quite a bit of experience but it's kind of your first time putting your own mark on a brand so yeah what was the, st what was the style of those wines I wanted something that um, was not going to overpower the site. Um, again, I was still trying to figure out what that vineyard was really capable of. So I went in there a little, um, you know, a little, I don't know if generic is the right term, but, um, you know, not putting too much style mm -hmm. onto it. And heard what the seller club, you know, what some of the buyers were, were looking at. Um, and then worked from there. But I once I found out that the that the site was a little warm and it, it tended to be fairly ripe, you know, I'm I believed in embracing and I still believe in embracing kind of from the from the fruit forward. Um, you know, adjusting alcohols or picking early, you know, to, to keep Alex down or I think vineyard decisions are probably better than winemaking decisions, um, adjustments in the in the in the fermenter in the in the winery. Um, but I did want to be true to the the fruit and not go back and, and be correcting, because mm -hmm. those were you know we had vintages like '08, fairly warm, and then you went into uh, '10 which was cool and small harvest, and then 11, which was, you know, very wet. And, and so I just felt like if I was always, you know, I'm always trying to have some magic number in mind, I'm just going to be chasing it every year. Oregon has vintage variation. That's the other thing. I mean, it's like you're, I want to express what, it, what happened that year. And um, um, I let that dominate the the story mm -hmm. that and playing with I you know playing with clones or or you know bottling single clones bottling single blocks um, really driving the the sense of place and the differences even you know in the 20 plus acre vineyard 30 acre vineyard you've got these these subtleties in this mm -hmm. in the blocks mm -hmm. which were awesome what about learning the vineyard? You mentioned that was part of the part of the big challenge for you was what is what does the vineyard have? What is it? What can it be? Mm -hmm. How long does that kind of thing take? How long did it take you to feel comfortable and confident making some of those vineyard decisions as you mentioned? Um, I think the growing wine or you know growing grapes in Oregon uh, with the the vintage variation and the and the the weather patterns that we have. Just when you think you got it all figured out, <laughs> something just comes out of nowhere. Um, so I tried not to be, uh, 
still now, I try not to be uh, overly complacent or, or, you know, like, yeah, I, I can, you know, I know what, I know what's going to happen. If you don't, and um, relying on the quality of the fruit from basically from from bud break mm -hmm. uh, is kind of what you have to rely on. But it's, yeah, it's mother nature. Things happen. <laughs> you can have some great plans. <laughs> they don't always work out that way. And then you're managing chaos again. Yeah. 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 So tell me about uh, the sort of the next step for you at that point. How, how long were you at Methadone and, and what was next after that? Um, so I was there until 20, spring of 2015. And um, in that time we, uh, at Methvin, we also, um, you know, the economy changed. You know, we were coming out, came out of the dot-com and that bubble and then went into recession and you know it was it was tougher to sell wine and people weren't buying and um so we changed we pivoted a little bit into a uh, that custom crush model we took on clients um we tried a second label uh, of pinot and um so we did you know we had some steps through through that um which changed the direction kind of you know of of what, well, both Alan and I thought we were doing in in oh six oh seven versus, all right, it's twenty thirteen. What are we What are we doing now? Mm -hmm. um, adapt and you know, grow through it. So, I I looked at throughout you know um, throughout winemaking and through what resonated with me like what I kept on you know getting excited about at, in the winery started to be some of the technology in winemaking some of the always been kind of like gear trinket not trinkets um you know the stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> shiny stainless <laughs> ah <laughs> <laughs> um so I got into the supply side in uh, in 2015, we uh, we have a unique uh, store here in McMinnville, uh, Davison Winery Supply, and unique because it was brick and mortar. It was like it was like a you know grocery store for winemakers, and there's not a lot of those places around. Uh, you'd walk in there, and you know there'd be one guy getting a package of yeast and a you know, and a glass carboy because he was making something in his garage. And they'd be right next to the winemaker for the second largest producer in the state. You know, it was, it, it was an interesting environment. Um, and so I, I, I started talking with, with Steve Davison um, about, well, you know, I'm a winemaker and, and if I was there, on site, you know, I could just give a little bit more of a of a been there, done that 
advice uh, to the supplies and and then also work with the suppliers um, to let them you know kind of see what's what's new in the industry what's coming down the road mm -hmm. you know and try and make sure that we have that and stay connected to to the new stuff mm -hmm. so that was a great experience it's a big change yeah I dug that you know and you know we were raising you know raising my kids and we were my wife and I were building our family and it was it was kind of nice to not have harvest you know be gone for three months at least mentally <laughs> at home <laughs> um, so that was a that was a different you know a bit of a change it was just something you know we wanted to try what were the, what were the best parts of the experience for you what did you what did you enjoy most about it um I liked the the uh, the access to the education. You know, it was kind of like to be uh, to be paid to read the wine catalogs and to you know know what's going on. Um, talking to to people all over the all over the world about you know the the support side of of winemaking you know what they were doing what they were seeing with their winemakers in, in their regions and um, a little bit bigger perspective I guess it, it you know if I if I was kind of up on the hill at Willa Kenzie you know and and not and then went to Dobbs to gain a little bit bigger perspective of what was going on there. I was on the hill at Methvin and then left there and kind of saw a bigger perspective again um, on, on an even larger scale about what was going on in the industry. It's really interesting, kind of interesting when you map it out like that, it's a very interesting way to look at it. Were there things that surprised you that were going on in the industry that you hadn't sort of realized kind of being down in the trenches? Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah, there's you see the business side and and you know, uh, hear hearing stories about even you know even what you would think would be the most with it and together brands or winemakers still have challenges. <laughs> they're like, oh, but they're golden. They're doing great. They have problems too. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was yeah, that was it. Were there any interesting, uh, kind of interesting shifts in the industry that you were aware of in that point? Anything, any technological, or or kind of new new things were coming online? Well, I, yeah, the biggest, the, the yeah, one of the interesting shifts at the at the time was kind of not what was coming on, but what was happening at the same time, and I think that's the rise of nat the natural wine movement. So. People were, and and I mean I, I don't know exact the exact timeline. I don't want to you know say oh well natural wine started you know in 2014 on December 3rd, um, but it was about that time you know when we would get you reach out to somebody or you'd hear more of this and more of the natural wines were coming online and so then you'd you'd reach out to a winemaker you you know have a conversation about you know, hey, this new product, they're like, oh, no, no, we're, you know, we're, we've gone vegan. We're not adding anything, you know, in that world. And, and, and both, 
yeah, I mean, both from a, yeah, this is what we're doing, to a, you know, ah, you're just peddling snake oil, you know, like you just, you just want us to add more stuff to our wine. So really visceral reactions sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, um, and often from people who didn't know exactly what they were doing, so. So I, 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 obviously, like I said, it's kind of a big change for you coming back, kind of back into that side of things. Did you, did you mm -hmm. find that you overall like enjoyed the, 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 that being a salesperson, being a, being a supply person? And, and what brought you back into production at that point? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I did enjoy it. I, uh, it was cool. Um, I couldn't stay out of production entirely. <laughs> So in 2015, uh, I told, for harvest of 2015, um, I told my wife, uh, you know, hey, we could, you know, I could make a little wine on the side. I know, you know, I know plenty of people that we could, you know, get ourselves a little license and, and rent some space and, you know, make, make a few hundred gallons. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and of course, you, you can't, you can't see stand to see grapes go to waste so you know it's september and like hey chris you want a couple tons of pinot of course bring them in come on um so we we kept on i guess we kept on tripping down the the path of a, a small brand for ourselves and um honestly weren't really might really in, we weren't really thinking about like ah oh, we want to be commercial we want to like this is our plan of you know build a winery get a vineyard uh, take this into you know this this production we just we kept tripping through it and um, one of the one of the big trips or no one of the one of the big signals was my wife always she, she always wanted some bubbles so I said you know what I, I've got the time I'll make I'll make a small batch of bubbles <laughs> some sparkling wine so we uh we agreed to do that and we called it uh stat stat wines and um yeah so in 2015 we made some pinot made some uh made a little bit of bubbles mm. i did a, a sparkling rosé gamay mm. so back to the gamay back to the gamay big fan so so even after all this time, this is this is your first bottle with your name on it, or at least part, yeah. part, part of your name on it, at least. Yeah. What's the, what's that like for you? What was the process like? Was it different than you expected? It was. Um, all my, several of my friends teased me because back, you know, in say two or three years prior to that, they'd say, "Well, when are you going to do your own brand?" I'm like, "No way! Are you kidding?" I know. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna do that. So there we go. Let's start a brand. Um, it, you know, time management became uh, a little crazy. You know, I thought I thought being gone at harvest, you know, working as the you know lead winemaker took took me away. But now having a brand where, you know, I've got a full time job that's you know in the wine industry. So there's a lot of cross, you know. Um, you know, everything dovetailed, it all worked together. Uh, but it was still just, I think I, I think I worked more at that time just in both worlds because 
all right, I've got, you know, finish up work in the in the shop and then go do punch downs or you know, go go bottle at seven o'clock at night, and, you know, and then try and sell it on the weekends. And so it was. That was that's what kept. Uh, that was definitely uh, you know the big oh yeah now I'm have your own your own business you're working all the time there's just you're never off so that was a big thing and then uh, but we built we kept on building that and um, our our uh, our philosophy was single vineyard and single variety so I wanted to keep it very very focused very specific not and again not I don't think we ever had big aspirations of, of production. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to connect small vineyard sites, you know, specific locations with what they had planted there and, and bottle those. Yeah. Certain certain types of place or, or certain varietals other than obviously bubbles mm -hmm. that you were excited to work with, were you, what were you seeking? Um, into aromatic white. So, um, Gewürztraminer out of the Columbia Gorge. Uh, love that area up there, the Underwood, uh, Washington side. You know, 12, 1300 foot elevation, volcanic silt, just screams, just awesome whites, great acid, and, and uh, lively aromatics. You know, fantastic site. And, you know, it's it, like just with my experience and, or, you know, exposure, you just see little little gem pockets that are all over the valley of oh well, there's this you know found own rooted pinot gris up in forest grove and you know just tucked in in, in the firs up there you know something with some identity so mm -hmm. some real uh some real personality mm. so things like that found some gamay down in in uh um down by wheatland the old danauer farms yeah, they had, they had Gamay planted back in there. <laughs> awesome. What about, you mentioned trying to sell it, uh, obviously another, a whole other challenge. So, mm -hmm. so tell me about that. How, how do you, once you've decided you're gonna make a commercial brand for yourself and you got a name, mm -hmm. what, are the, what's, what are the next steps towards kind of making it a successful brand? Well, that was certainly a, um, a big learning point um, and I think ultimately like a bigger philosophical question that I was you know that I, that I wrestled with and we just I mean still talk about it still trying to figure it out I think every, a lot of people are and that was if I can I guess I'd summarize it like you know how do you connect with those customers and when I when I kind of put it into my historical perspective, I, I've seen the progression from, I remember back at Christum, and one of my, one of my roles was to um, manage like distributor allocations. And so back then, and Christum was a, you know, it's a legacy brand, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and they're trying, you know, they're, they've got all these distributors clamoring to get the wine and you know managing oh well you can only have five cases of the single vineyard you know you can 
you know, can you take some Pinot Gris to get your five cases? You know, there was, there was management of distributors. And then, you know, the pendulum swung over and, you know, now uh, at a point, definitely even coming out of that now or a few years back where wineries are, are, can't find a distributor to represent them. Like you know, please somebody pick me up in a in, in a state. You know, just um, and so that was a huge shift. Mm -hmm. That distribution model, the 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 way wineries interacted with it. You know, as and and that's all it. it and I think it's also um, it's not really tied to. I don't want to say quality of wine, but f but taste of wine. It's not saying I can't find a distributor because my wine sucks. It's purely business decisions. I think the consumer, I think now the quality of wine has never been better. The the entry into commercial winemaking is not my wine's better. I mean, it, the bar is set. It has to be on point. Mm -hmm. There's no room for, for, um, for bad wine out there. It's not going to last, you know. So, it didn't. It it took away the, the the being able to just say, you know, my Pinot is super handmade and it's it's awesome. You know, I do this. I was just like, well, everybody's doing that. I mean, it wasn't the story. You know, like I think a OPC or. Um, uh, you know, the Oregon Wine Seminar, there was a, what was it, was it uh, Cole Danauer, mm -hmm. uh, who was talking about if, you know, if one more person tells me I'm passionate about Pinot, <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> no, it's <laughs> overused and uh, <laughs> underwhelming. <laughs> um, so that conversation all changed. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. Um, and so then it became, you know, connecting, connecting to the sales world or, or selling your wine it became, personality was involved. It was like, you know, you had to go out and work the market and connect with the buyers and people and, you know, if, um, if they liked you and they liked the wine, they brought it in. You know, if they didn't like you and they liked the wine, you maybe got in. <laughs> They didn't like the wine. They didn't like you. It was, you know, forget it. But it was um, um, there was a lot of development, and and that, you know, that was something I had to learn. I didn't, you know, I kept on thinking with old past, you know, the past experiences. I'm like, oh, it's just not like that anymore. This is this is changing. This is changing. So that's definitely the the, the challenge for for so many new producers or even even existing producers because the the market keeps changing. Mm -hmm. How did you find how did you find success? What were you, what were the sort of the successful strategies for selling wine? Um, having the wines be have a, have their own personality. Um, Developing that line between having a wine that was like so funky it was odd, but not be um, not be just varietally correct and and just you know 
such a narrow focus. It didn't it didn't really speak to anybody. I think what the response that we hear about the wines or the stout wines are are that you know the wines are really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, we did uh, people like the labels too. We we did some we did a unique piece of artwork for each skew and. And the artwork kind of told the story, told a little bit about the style of the wine, and you know, it was just it was the the packaging, you know, the whole the whole um, my wife and I, you know, being the seller, genuine, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that plays into it too. Like they, you, the buyer has to has to know that you're not you know, just schmoozing them, selling them something. They feel connected to you and what you're doing and what you're selling and everything, mm -hmm. you know? There was intention in all of that. We, we've used, I use an intentional winemaking in, in a lot of our um, discussions because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, you can have happy accidents, but you know, we're very intentional about, about what, what happens, mm -hmm. so. Had you found that your, by the time you were making your own wine, that your philosophy or your style of winemaking had changed? And, and if so, how would you sort of describe the philosophy behind the, wine, the wines under the Stet label? Um, the winemaking, I don't, I don't know that it varied too much from even, you know, back in the, in the Methvin days, because it was, it was this, very similar like I always think you know if you're if you're making if you're kind of in this small batch world um, and you've got you know each fermenter has the opportunity to be its own wine really and so there's not a ton of difference if it's if I've got five fermenters or if I've got 50 that's still pretty small scale and so I just, you know, from the, from the stat, okay, I've got two fermenters, you know. Um, it also makes it very critical that every gallon counts. You know, I, I'm not blending away anything. I'm not, uh, I don't have the, the luxury of, I'm just not gonna use those barrels, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more pressure on just everything has to be spot on. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also use that to, to, to give the wine personality. I'm not blending away for, oh, the reserve or the, you know, tastes the same as it did last year. It's like, yeah, there was variation. Used a different barrel, and, you know, went through ML slower, whatever happened, you know, builds that personality in there. Mm -hmm. So at what point does Winter's Hill become part of the next step for you? Yeah, so um, earlier this spring, um, I was connected with, with Russell, a Gladheart up here, and he was looking for, uh, he was looking for an associate winemaker to come in and, and um, help with production and, and you know, be a new, a new voice in production. Because um, the, the facility here is, uh, it's, a, it's a reoccurring theme. It's much like <laughs> like Dobbs and Methvin. Uh, Russell's got the Winter's Hill brand and then um, has Custom Crush clients 
that are here. Um, and those clients, you know, they have, they have different requirements of, you know, help and, and where they, you know, what kind of assistance during, for, during harvest and then also during the winemaking process, how that, uh, how that comes in and then um, helping Russell with development and, and growth and, and evolution of the, the Winter's Hill brand. Mm -hmm. So I was pretty excited about it. This is a great, uh, it's a phenomenal site. The vineyard that they have here is, is amazing, kind of hallowed ground. And um, I'm excited to work with, uh, work with, with new fruit and, and work with Russell and the family and, and uh, see what we, can, what we can do going forward. So you mean still pretty obviously pretty new at, at, at the role here, but yeah. <laughs> what, what what have you seen so far, and what are you kind of thinking as you look ahead to the first harvest here for yourself? Um, well, back to a state driven, uh, so it's nice to you know coming going through this summer, being able to drive down and check out the vineyard and and see you know in real time all the time where we're at and what the evolution is you know. Uh, how things are, are progressing towards vintage. Um, and, you know, with the clones, uh, with the, the blocks that they have here, um, again, getting back into site expression, block expression, differences in those things, um, in, in those sites, you know, even though they're feet away from each other, <laughs> continuing to express those. And I haven't, uh, I haven't done a ton with, uh, with Dundee Hills fruit in my career, so um, that's, that's, a, that's a big step as well. Kind of been an Eola Hills Pinot guy. So. <laughs> branching out. Branching, right. Branching out into the red clay. Exactly. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> So let's talk about the the industry a bit in in general. Obviously, you've been in it quite a while. You've seen you've seen quite a bit of change um, yeah. from kind of your first impressions of of the Oregon wine industry to now. What are the what are the biggest changes for you? What 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 have you noticed about the industry that's changed the most? And what does the industry kind of look like now in twenty twenty one? Yeah, it's. Early on, it was interesting, kind of coming from Napa and a lot of those early um, tasting room visitors up here would ask, well, is this going to be the next Napa? You know, is this, you know, what are you guys, Napification? What, you're charging for a tasting fee? You know, what is this? Um, see here, the, you know, I always wondered what, what would be the, the growth? What's the, you know, what's, what's the potential here? And ultimately, it's it geographically, it's so much more spread out, and the vineyards are not contiguous. It's not block after block. There's certain areas where they are, but you know, you're always going to have fantastic vineyard hazelnuts, fantastic vineyard. You know, there's a grass farm, there's a blueberry stand. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it breaks up that 
that you know mega overriding force of of vineyard and mm -hmm. and and it, that doesn't have to take away from the focus of the wines that are made or or say that it's not a vineyard region because it's not planted 100% to vine. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, you know, to our advantage that there is some diversity in what Willamette Valley and what all the, you know, the sub-AVAs have going on. Um, I think it's still site exploration. I mean, the we talked about, I mentioned the Columbia Gorge, um, and there's still sites that are getting planted up there. Mm -hmm. Just a phenomenal place. And um, and sites here, you know, I think may, yes, we're getting some outside resource, some some investment, some some money from bigger companies and corporations that are going to come up here. That's um, going to happen, but I don't think I don't. That's not a negative, in my opinion. Um, it's more validation that. We're on to you know, this area is worth something, so <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, and I think people are you know wine is wine is is uh, is firmly into our our culture. Our you know it's it's not a novelty. Um, I think maybe one of the best things that have come out of the last you know people being at home a lot in the last year or so um, is that they've reintroduced wine into, they have a, a glass of wine or, you know, share a bottle of wine at dinner mm -hmm. on, a, on a Wednesday. And everything works out okay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just putting it back into, into, uh, uh, into our, into our, you know our routines, our fold, like introduce, and it, it introduced to some people that weren't used to that, that reserved it for a special occasion. You know, it's like no, have have some wine with dinner. Mm -hmm. So that I, I think is has been positive growth. How about the wines themselves? How have they changed in the time you've been here? Um, it's a it's that consumer palate, I think. Um. Like I mentioned, quality has probably never been better. I think the the baseline of what the consumer is going to run into if they just go and grab something off the shelf is pretty high, higher than it probably ever has been. Um, I think the wines, we are probably more responsive to the customer or the consumer palate now. Um, maybe before it took a lot longer to get feedback, mm -hmm. but now it's mm -hmm. almost vintage to vintage, you know. Hey, people don't want high alcohol wines. Okay, let's, let's not pixelate, mm -hmm. you know. Um, decisions made are made a little bit quicker. And, uh, yeah, I mean, as the uh, uh, as those bigger companies and bigger investments come in here, I mean, you see a little bit more of the volume-driven stuff, and um, those are still, you know, I think I think those are on the on the peripheral. 
I mean, this area is still going to be about um, high quality, really like personality driven wines. So what about as you look ahead for the future? What, what, what's coming next for the Oregon wine industry? And is there something you're looking forward to or, or, or excited about? Is there cons conversely something you're, you're fearful of or worried about? I think w one of the big things um, is probably going to be varietal uh, exploration. Um, it's not necessarily going to be all about Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Um, we're seeing other things planted, you know, Gamay and Cab Franc and um, um, other varietal, uh, you know, distinctions more and more than just a novelty. Like, hey, let's plant this and see what happens, you know. But really, really focused. Um, and that's, you know, that's that's great. We don't have a, you know, we don't have an AOC that tells us that you know we can only plant this and so we can do some do some ex exploration yeah I mean I, I can't even begin to really you know grasp what the weather is going to do and what we can plant you know and what and what those impacts are going to be um, but you know it that ultimately does also support varietal exploration, <laughs> so that's a little bit of a chicken and egg. I don't know. I don't know which which came first because people started talking about planting other things, you know, a few years back, mm -hmm. but that's definitely coming down the road. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and quality is still remaining high. I mean, you know, there's no. You asked if there was any big technology things. I, I don't think. I don't see anything major in wine making, um, you know, machines, products, yeah. though there's always innovation, stuff on stuff that makes it, you know, a little bit better, but um, I don't think there's, I don't think they'll, wine making is too art and art driven, artist, you know, art influence, personal style. And also the, you know, the, the, the randomness of farming, of it's a natural product to, to have one thing come in and just revolutionize the wine industry. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> what about for the future for yourself? Obviously, new, new position here. Uh, yeah. Got your first harvest coming up here. Uh, tell me about uh, anything else you're looking ahead to in the future or anything you're excited about? I'm all I'm. I'm excited about it all. I mean, you know, especially coming. You know, you come out of the last year or so, and you know, it sort of renews your like enthusiasm to just still be kicking around, <laughs> still be doing what you like to do. I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, that's what. Uh, yeah, that's what I look forward to. Keep plugging away, you know. Be part of the, be part of the uh, the experience. All right. All the questions that I have for you, Chris. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? Oh, wow. Uh, no. 
that's pretty in-depth. <laughs> so that's always the goal, so I'm glad, glad it worked out. Uh, thank you so much for your time, uh, for sharing with us your stories and your thoughts. And you. uh, go Appreciate and let it. you off the hook. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.